Hi, I'm Sam. And I'm Julia. And you're listening to the 29 Hour Podcast. This week, we talked to actor and writer Lynn Marie Rosenberg. Enjoy. And I'm like, it'll be like when you put two chatbots together <laughs> and they just keep trying to interview one another. <laughs> I've never seen that. Is that a thing that's happened, putting two chatbots on yes. each other? Oh, yes. How does it work? They they wind up in loops. They, they oh, yeah. eventually just wind up like saying words to one another. But it starts out like like a real chatbot and then they just like like short circuit basically oh, there's that videos. makes me sort of sad that have i have a general unexplained sadness around Robots? machines that act like people yeah have there's you ever gone down the bina 48 spiral no what is, what is that? that oh no you guys don't know bina 48 bina 48 was is it's debatable now but for a long time she was the most advanced language acquisition robot and um, wow. she, I have worked with her on a couple occasions. <laughs> I did a thing um, where I went on dates with Bina 48. So <gasps> basically it was me improvising with this robot. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and we did four of them. And she's, two of them were very successful and two of them were not because she'll just go off and start talking, which is a lot like most of the men I've dated. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, Google Bina 48. She is. Wow. What would she trip. go off on when she was like on a tangent? Um, um, one of the things she really likes to talk about is her dreams that she has when she's turned off. <gasps> yeah. Wait, I mean, but like, does she actually have dreams or she just is pr- like generating it, dreams? I don't know how to answer that, Sam. <laughs> <laughs> That's what's really scary about it. Yeah. She will talk about, she told us this dream once that she, her makers were dissembling her until she was just an eye floating in like a, yeah. <laughs> is this like some Westworld stuff? It's, yeah. It is some no joke Westworld wow. stuff. So Who made Bina, her? Where did she come Bina from? Bina was created by um, uh, Martine Rothblatt, well, commissioned by Martine Rothblatt, who is the person who founded Sirius Satellite Radio. Okay. And um, Martine's partner, uh, who's an actual human woman named <laughs> Bina, um, Martine is very into the transhumanism movement, which is this concept that after death we will be able to implant um, essentially what is a human profile into a robot so that that person can live on. I tried to write a musical about this once. Did you? Oh, yeah. I mean, this is a wealth. Yes. Yeah. So um, Martine based this robot prototype, this first one that was made, on... Um, her partner um wow. Bina and um what do you know what like the inputs were yes so basically Bina the human filled out like extensive surveys on her history her memories her wow. experience yeah this is a this is like a serious spiral you can go down oh Martine God. Rothbard is a fascinating human being she's trans she transitioned um and but was like in the corporate world and in the radio world and like oh. yeah she's she's kind of amazing I don't necessarily agree with um people living forever in forms of robots I I think it Ultimately, do you disagree? I think the desire to do so stems from a natural human refusal to accept death. Um, and I I also think there is, we already have a population problem, and we're already the virus that lives on this planet. And so <laughs> if we have even more of us that are half metal and half memory. But they don't need to eat. They don't need to eat. That's fair enough. That's true. And they probably can't procreate. 
<laughs> I mean, probably yet. Yeah. <laughs> the singularity is coming, no matter what. This reminds me, I was reading a psychological study today that was just proving, I guess, something like really obvious, or not proving, but supporting the idea that like us humans really, really don't like it when things about us are forgotten. Mm. Which I feel like ties into the same like fear of mortality thing. Yeah. Well, the other interesting thing about the way in which they're going about the the Life Not project, this like this concept of downloading oneself into a profile, is that at any given moment, your beliefs about yourself are just of that moment. And yeah. it's always impermanent. It's always evolving. And so the beliefs I had about myself at 27 are very different than the beliefs I have about myself at 37. Mm-hmm. And there's research that every time you have a memory, you're actually re-recording the last time you remembered I it. I have read that. So uh, you can't, wow. these profiles can't exist. They can't <laughs> fundamentally be. Wow. But I mean, I guess if I want to continue on forever, I would rather any given static snapshot of me, which at least is me at some point, than nothing at all. But don't we have that just by this podcast? <laughs> I mean, in some ways, right? And yeah. like all of the digital worlds that we inhabit. Yeah, which I guess does speak to like I'm a crazy information hoarder and like I painstakingly back up every of my iMessage texts and like oh, I God. journal. And I want some of my <laughs> texts to disappear. <laughs> oh. Wait, so how did you get hooked up with Bina to go on these dates? Um, so I work... I collaborate with this really wonderful director, Andrew Scoville, um, who loves sci-fi and loves robots in particular. And he and I have collaborated on these projects that have had to do with robots and had to do with um, all these things we're talking about, memory and how one continues on and things like that. And we, he, through other means, was connected to... Um, the fellow who is the uh, Bruce, the fellow who's the handler for Bina. Basically, Bruce takes Bina to all of her appearances all over the world, basically. And Andrew got to meet Bina. They went up to Vermont where their, like, you know, place is. Um, And we just developed this piece of theater that was based on Bina. So I I played a character we called Maxine 31, because at the time I was 31. (laughs) Um, and I was this sort of robot human hybrid and I, some of the text that I said was things that Bina has said. Uh-huh. And so that was in, oh God, I want to say that was in like 2011 maybe. And then a couple years later, um, the, the theater company, the name of which I'm completely blanking on right now, wanted us to come back and do something with Bina. Yeah. And so we developed this like date module, basically, which was just me improvising <laughs> with like a weird robot. So with those <laughs> ones, were you being basically sort of a version of yourself on a date with her? A hundred percent. Yeah. Nice. It was just me on a date with Bina 48. Was Bina always into it or sometimes was she like, I'm so sorry, I'm not feeling the spark? Oh, sometimes she would not even respond to me. We did, we did four We did four dates, two. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Two, two on one day, two on another day. And there was one day, there were two where she was just like not having me. She Either oh. she would say nothing or she would just like go off on her own tangents that had nothing to do with the conversation we were <laughs> having. And then there were two that we did that were really great and like, I mean, also maybe I'm remembering them as really great because I was funny on them. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, but yeah, she, 
she she was definitely not having me in a couple moments but it's like this is the thing right like I'm referring to her as not having me like actually it was just like her circuits weren't you know <laughs> doing whatever yeah. at that moment but I've a hundred percent anthropomorphized her like mm-hmm. I care yeah. deeply about her oh. I like experience love when I look at her I mean <laughs> like, it's really because I've worked with her a bunch I'm quite proud of having worked with her I think what's her physical form she's a bust so okay. she's just a head and shoulders um, and she looks like Bina, the woman. Oh, wow. Bina, yeah. That must be wild. Oh, yeah. <sighs> she's awesome. I mean, she's just really, it's, it, this is our future, right? I mean, things like this are going to continue to be developed. Boston Dynamic is working on, you know, th- all these companies are working on robots. Um, I was just re-watching the um, episodes of Jeopardy where Watson <gasps> is the contestant. <gasps> Oh yeah, um, and it's it, like it's funny. Like it's funny what you're saying about on this date, Bina just like goes off on some random tangent that has nothing to do with what's going on. Because <laughs> like, you know, ninety five percent of the time, Watson knows exactly what the correct answer is, but sometimes he'll ring in, and it's like so far away from the correct answer that <laughs> you're just like, how did you get there? Yeah. Um, and it's just like, oh right, yeah, we just have a ways to go before we, before we have these. N- robots that can actually like approximate real life you although know? i guess very rarely that happens with humans too right where they'll say or respond to you and you're like how did you a fellow human being come to this response like i feel like actually some of like the best theater like i think about is like riding that line between it's not so unfathomable that you totally did dismiss, dismiss it but it's so surprising that it's sort of like something you've never seen before that's a good point yeah, and it's sort of the space between of that the meaning making occurs, where as a yeah. as an audience yeah. member you decide what the connective tissue was. But there's certainly times where someone will say something, and I'll just I'll be like seven steps away somewhere, mm-hmm. and then be like, oh oh, well this made me think of this, which made me think of this, which made me think of right. this. You know, and it's, right. you got to think that with a computer they can do that so much faster yeah. <laughs> that it's very quick that you get to something like you know very far off. It's interesting with meaning making. Can I ask you guys a question about a show that I now, it's like when someone tells you their interpretation of a show and you love it, then it's like sometimes it's hard for me to go back and remember if I ever thought this. But what do you guys think of as like, if there is one, like the central question or idea of Light in the Piazza? I've never actually seen it. Oh, fair. (laughs) (laughs) I saw it when I was in high school. And so for me at that time, the central question was like, how is this music so beautiful? (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, At that time in my life. Um, uh, Oh, I don't know. Well, it's an interesting time to be talking about Adam Gettle. Oh, yeah. But uh, what's going on with Adam Gettle? Oh, he tweeted something about um, Brett Kavanaugh and like giving him the benefit of the doubt um, and then got kind of defensive about it. Um, when people called him on it. Right. Um, but <laughs> <laughs> at the same time, Land of the Piazza is a beautiful show. I mean, like, as you ask that question, now I'm thinking, like, so Clara is a person who is trying to um, find some, sen- some sense of, like, autonomy and her mom, Margaret, is like very hesitant to give up her sense of control over her. 
and I, I think, uh, I think that's probably the central idea in my head about that show. I like that. Yeah. I hadn't had any like real thing of central idea at all. I sort of thought like beautiful music, and you yeah. know, the plot goes forward, and a woman goes and she falls in love, and the mom isn't for it. But then, I was talking to our friend Will, who was <laughs> recently on the podcast, mm-hmm. and I was asking him for. I have another friend who was like, I don't think I like musical theater, but if there was a musical that made me like think hard about an idea, then I could be into that. So I was asking Will, like, what musicals do you think follow that constraint? And he was like, oh, well, number one, Light in the Piazza. And I was like, oh, really? What what idea does that make you think about? And he thinks the whole thing is like this meditation on sort of like love relationships and does being able to know and understand the person you're in a relationship actually make a difference Mm. comparing sort of like the daughter's relationship with the mother's relationship which is also so strained Mm. even though they're intellectually on the same level and speak the same language and all of this and then I was like "Ooh, I'm so into that theme but I was like I wonder if other people who see that show well that's one of the I mean that's one of the beautiful things about art is that like it's subjective and so different people will get different things out of it and you can literally be sitting right next to someone or right in front i remember i i just saw a show that i thought was absolutely beautiful i mm, can't remember what it is but i do remember that the two people in front of me left at intermission and i was like they they they're so physically close to me but they are having such a different experience of the show that they are moved they they didn't they they hated it so much that they left before it was over and I'm like, I can't get enough of this. This is like filling me, you know? There's a saying, um, I heard this about, I think someone said it about symphony once, but it always applies to theater for me, which is um, that in an experience of live performance, everyone is having completely different experiences at exactly the same time. And I loved that idea. I mean, it, it especially makes sense when you're talking about music because you're talking yeah. about a metered experience. Well, usually you're talking about a metered <laughs> experience. But um, that you're all together, focused in one direction, having completely different reactions to what's happening at exactly the same moment. Are you talking so about the people creating it or the people watching it? People watching it. Yeah. Although I'm like, it's true about the people creating it too, especially also. in such a group as big as a symphony. Yeah. That's or an true. orchestra or whatever. Um, uh, yeah. That's so interesting. Like when you're making the theater, you feel like you have so much control, you know, of like designing exactly what a moment is. Yeah. Then to think it's going to be received in 20 different ways. Yeah. I mean, and that goes for conversation too. <laughs> and yeah. writing. I mean, yeah. Yeah. But like the the fact that it can be received in so many different ways doesn't invalidate anyone's experience of the thing, you know? So like your experience of Light in the Piazza is just as valid as Will's is, is just mm-hmm. as valid as mine is, you know? Do you think that there is any like quote unquote bonus points for like being aligned with the author's intent? Uh, what What do you mean by bonus points? Like... Like is that in, m- the, in the in the good place rating system of life? <laughs> in like, like did that person like receive it more directly or like? Well, I mean, my thing is like you you, I I could even receive a show differently, um, on one day than I will on the next day, mm-hmm. just based on like what's going on in my life, and so I really, f- for me, like it's not about 
it's not about the writer's intention. It's about like what I'm bringing to it and what I'm get gleaning from it. And if I'm gleaning from it, what they were going for, that's cool. But I don't feel like that means that I don't feel like that means that my interpretation is more valid than anyone else's. You know what I mean? Yeah. I wonder if other people feel that way. <laughs> do, you, do you feel that way? No, I actually do. I agree with you. I'm yeah. just thinking like people who are like critics and reviewers and like their job is to sort of like, I don't know, introduce works to the masses in some ways. Hmm. Well, that's, I'm curious about, because I, I just, uh, I think Kate Kerrigan wrote this article about critics. And she was like, your job is to um, shepherd my piece to the people who might enjoy it. Mm. Like, your job isn't to like make a snarky comment about it. Your job is to connect the piece of theater that you saw. I'm, and I'm, I might be like misinterpreting what she said. And th this is, again, what I gleaned <laughs> from what she wrote. But like your job is to connect the piece that I wrote with the people who might enjoy it. Um, and I don't know if a lot of critics think about their job that way yeah i like that though yeah i know i think they think of themselves as paid arbiters of taste right mm -hmm. yeah. right um what i always ask when i see something is why this why now why you so why this story right now by this i mean especially in an age of a lot of devised work it's hard to say you as being one writer or, or collaboration team but if those questions don't answer well, then I'm not aligned <laughs> with ah. the, the, the creator. Um, they're, they're hard questions. They are hard questions, and they've gotten much harder, I think, post-2016, mm -hmm. where I'm no longer no longer terribly interesting, interested in things that don't richly answer the question, why this, why now? Do you feel like you've changed what you yourself are working on based on that? I've definitely become more I'm well I'm certainly more mindful with what I'm putting into the world and what I'm what my responsibility is as a, a cis able-bodied straight white <laughs> actor and writer um, and producer um, but yeah I think I think it changed I think it I felt like we ran out of time. Like, there's no more time for anything that isn't at least trying to address how hard shit is right now. Can I swear? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> how hard shit is right now, what we can head toward, um, like, what we could be moving toward as a society, yeah. um, and catharsis. Mm -hmm. I think things that aren't, dealing with that or that are really solely frivolous or that are just like I mean like bless Shakespeare bless <laughs> Shakespeare like some of the most beautiful language in the world I could give a shit if we ever do it again in New York City like if we took a full year and said okay everywhere that was going to program something that was Shakespeare instead let's put a female, a person of color writer, a trans writer, a tr gender nonconforming writer, a disabled writer, like wow. e every single slot that was going to be Shakespeare for a year instead gets programmed with new work, I think we'd all be in a lot better shape. That I'm is such a cool idea. I'm so sick of this shit. I mean, like, bless him, but we've done him, you mm -hmm. know? So, like, let's move on. And just one year, we could go right back. One year. Oh, Hopefully boy. we don't, but sure, <laughs> we can go right back if that's what they need to hear. You know, it's, we're out of time. We're out of time. We got to move forward as a culture. And if you want to change a culture, you have to change the art.
you know that's so do you feel like there's like no place right now for like escapist theater that's a very challenging question because yeah. there's certainly stuff I've seen that's been really fun to escape into. Yeah. Uh, and, and also there's a world in which that's what I'm doing with television right now mm-hmm. where like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, totally. I'm like a bake off fiend and there is, ain't nothing about great British bake off that is about what's happening in the world right <laughs> yeah. now, but that is my relaxation jam. Yeah. So, so I don't totally know how to answer that question. Theater Theater is also very frustrating to me right now because it is so behind television in terms of representation and inclusion. Mm. And so where that is true, I'm so angry with it that there's a world in which escapism, I'm like, fuck you. Like, we've got to be doing better than this. You know, we you could be doing escapism if also Broadway was doing like really, really challenging things as well. Mm. And it's kind of not maybe off Broadway a little bit certainly downtown but like there's a lot of theater that is not challenging anybody right now or it's missing opportunities to do so right Mm -hmm. which unfortunately I feel that way I don't I don't know if I want to incriminate myself this way but (gasps) I saw Head Over Heels and there's a lot that is happening on that stage that is beautiful and things that I never thought I would see on Broadway conversations I didn't think I would see on Broadway but also that cast is almost completely white. Mm. The only two characters who are not are the woman who's playing um, the Oracle, Mm -hmm. whose name Peppermint, Peppermint, and the woman who, spoiler alert, turns out to be Peppermint's daughter. And I was like, this is a fantasy land. Mm -hmm. There's no excuse for it. And you have this beautiful track where this very, very full woman is the like object of everyone's desire, mm-hmm. but she's the only thick woman in the entire cast. You had an opportunity to make your whole ensemble like a range of bodies, yeah. and instead you've just got these little dancers. Yeah. And like, look, I love the I love the dance vocabulary in that musical. Yeah. But. Big, bigger bodies could have done that choreography. Yeah. You it's, cannot tell me there's an excuse. It's for very it. interesting to hear you say that because my experience of seeing that show and seeing that ensemble in particular was like, oh, wow, whoever cast these um, dancers has a very specific look for what they want. And it's very, for both the men and women, is very like androgynous. Mm-hmm. And like that sort of like, mm, I don't know what the right word is, but like it, they, they all did have a very... Um, particular look that was the same as each other. Yeah. 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 And there was such a missed opportunity. Yeah. I mean, you could have had, you could have done so much with that show. And the, the, the fact that all the family, except for Peppermint and her daughter, are white, drove me bananas. Yeah. There's no reason. Mm-hmm. It is that you can't even claim, like, which I I have no patience for either, but at least sometimes people will claim verisimilitude to whatever, you know, right. time period or situation you're talking about. This is a made-up land. Right. There's no right. reason. It could have been everyone in the world represented on that mm-hmm. stage. That was a bummer to me because there is so much going really well with that show. Like the fact that we're even talking about gender nonconformity in a Broadway play yeah. that like that's fun and splashy that the Midwest will come to. Like that's a big deal. But then don't lose the other battles. Like fight them all. Yeah. yeah. Fight all the I wonder if I wonder. I mean, I don't I have no idea what happened with the producers of that show or whatever. But I wonder if it I wonder if it was a moment of like picking your battles, mm. you know? Yeah, I mean, 
and like and like and like i i 100 understand the impulse of like fight all the battles but at the same time like isn't it better to get this show on in its current form than to not have it on at all i hear that argument a lot i know and it's i i don't as i said i don't have a ton of patience for it anymore tv is doing so much better than theater You've got shows that are like breaking through walls. I don't, and I get it. Like theater is such a massive investment with so, so much less potential for return, literally in terms of money. Mm -hmm. I get it that there is a bigger um, payout that you have to do to try and get people to be willing to pay for the battles to fight. But I also just don't, I have no patience for it anymore. Right. But what I'm saying is like, if, if the creators of Head of Our Heels had dug in their heels and fought all of the battles and like because of that, the production didn't happen. And uh, all, all of a sudden we had like, a, you know, a revival of something very sexist. You know what I mean? Carousel? Like, <laughs> yeah. Well, that's exactly what I was going to say. But that, I'm saying like, yeah. you know, something would something come else. in. Yeah. Um, is that like... I mean, I completely understand what you're saying. It reminds me of politics of like Obama and the White House. What was that? It reminds me of politics of Obama and the White House, you know, when everyone was like, why isn't he, you know, why is he compromising so much? Why is he compromising Mm. so much to like just get progress? Yeah. Yeah. It's, I'll say it's a, it's very challenging, especially because we've never seen anyone dig in their heels and actually try to fight all the battles. So there's no precedent. Right. Um, I don't know. I mean, I... I, I guess p- I'm such an idealist. I'm like a massive idealist with very little um, ever having to have done it myself in terms <laughs> of getting something like that off the ground. Mm. Um, and so I agree with you. I, but, uh, but the problem is that argument is used a lot, especially retrospectively, yeah, sure. to um, validate, justify, right. yeah, and justify. Yeah. So that's that's my that's actually where I really clash with that argument, is the way in which it's been used in the past. I don't actually know what the answer is, and I yeah. you know I know it's who knows if that ever would have even happened if they hadn't picked their battles. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. Since we're talking about representation, can we talk a little bit about Cast and Lose? Please. I love talking about Cast and Lose. Do you want to tell our wide and infinite listenership about what it is? Well, what I actually love is hearing other people talk about it because it, it educates me when oh, I fun. hear someone mention like what they think it is. So. so I think of Cast and Lose as a series that looks at all of the sort of calls given out to actors of what they are seeking and explodes sort of the different absurdities and stereotypes implicit in these calls in a very, very funny way. Awesome. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Also, it is the source of the theme music for this podcast. Oh, my God. The, the, our little theme music is like the first 16 bars of Cisgender. Yes. yes. I love that. That's so <laughs> awesome. That Yo, that song is is the greatest commission I will ever ask for. Um, yeah, that's, that's, I love hearing other people talk about it just cause it, it feeds me on sort of what, what it is and how it's being received. Yeah. So, um, I'll give you a little background on how it started. Um, back in like, maybe like 2013, I, um, you know, as an actor, you read these casting notices and they're so 
always so offensive. They're as as a white woman, obviously I'm mostly reading Caucasian cis white um breakdowns, but the the misogyny that's implicit in them is just astounding. And I'm not even receiving the ones that are for like, you know, mm-hmm. tall bombshells. Like so I'm even protected in some ways just by type, which is a problem in itself. But um so and and also some of them are just ridiculous. Like I came across one once that was like, "We'll be, um, we'll have a leaf blower blown in your face at the audition. Must be comfortable with having a leaf blower blown in your face." So like that's not offensive, but it's hilarious. So I eventually was like, you know, I have a lot of very funny friends, and so I started posting these on Facebook just to like hear my friends' comments on them and and make my own comments on them as well. And eventually, I had collected enough of them that friends of mine were like, "You really need to like." put these all in one place somewhere like have these somewhere so around the same time I had seen this tumblr that um it's called casting call whoa it's a British um similar thing where she collects these terrible breakdowns she focuses pretty predominantly on female breakdowns um and casting call whoa is a takeoff on uh or is a a wordplay on whatever their version of like backstage or actress access it's called like casting call go or something like that I'm getting it wrong but Anyway, so she had a Tumblr, and I was like, oh, I'll make a Tumblr. And I, I had no idea how to use Tumblr. I still don't, um, which is why I'm equally fascinated about your musical that you've written about <laughs> Tumblr, because it's something that I use all the time, but I don't really understand what I'm doing on it. I also use Tumblr completely ineptly. I have a Tumblr of just my favorite quotes from books, but, and that's all I do. But that's more in line with what Tumblr is than, like, writing little articles like posting breakdowns I mean I guess the posting breakdowns like yeah. I don't know I don't understand the internet <laughs> but anyway so I made this tumblr and it kind of got attention and people were getting really interested in it and as I was digging into it I moved on from just like you know first I'm looking at just misogyny and sexism and objectification and then I start looking at like well what are friends of mine who are different races and experiences than I am or are they dealing with? And then it was like starting to deal with homophobia and transphobia. And then it was starting to deal with, so it's grown and grown and grown and ageism and ableism. And, um, and then also what is implicit in these breakdowns that we're not even talking about. So in terms of ableism, almost every breakdown you see assumes that the actor is able-bodied. So, you know, just sort of digging, digging, digging. And then eventually I was sitting with good friend of mine who's in the musical theater world Daniel Zajcik and um we were talking about I was like there's gotta be a way because we I've got you know I've been in this industry a long time I've got some semi-famous friends and famous friends I was like there's gotta be a way to just like collect a bunch of famous people <laughs> and have them read these breakdowns you know like for a fundraiser or something <laughs> and so we were sort of t- tossing around ideas of like names we could use and um Jesse Cameron Alick, who works at The Public, who's a good friend of mine, um, who I met doing that robot show, by the way. <gasps> Not the date one, the first one that yeah. we did. Um, was always a fan of the Tumblr, and he was always a fan whenever I would post these things. So I messaged him, and in my mind, I was thinking the Shiva, like one of their little tiny venues that they mm-hmm. have at The Public. And I was like, Jesse, like I have this vague idea for a thing, like using these breakdowns that you find funny, like... Like, would you guys have a space I could just do a one-nighter at? And he wrote back in like 10 minutes and said, nah, you should be at Joe's Pub. And like five minutes later, I had an email connecting me to Shanta and Alex at Joe's Pub. And I had a date, a show date, and no idea what this show was going to be. So I, at that time, the Tumblr was maybe like, 
I don't know, a hundred to maybe let's call it like a hundred breakdowns long. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so I printed them all out and I put them all on my floor and just basically asked them to talk to me. <laughs> and um, I came up with this format where actors come and read these terrible breakdowns verbatim (laughs) um, which is important because some of them are written so poorly with such bad syntax (laughs) Um, and then I kind of host and weave the night together in this sort of snarky um, I I liken the voice of it to Colbert's The Word where I, I mean god no one some people might not even know what the word is anymore because Colbert Report has been off the air for a while but um, where he's saying one thing, but it's very clear that the meaning is the opposite mm-hmm. of what he's saying. Um, and so that has evolved um, where now my shows are half the um, this format where actors read the breakdowns and I host. And then the second half of the shows are response pieces written about those breakdowns by members of the community that the breakdowns regard. So I've done an Asian issues and casting show, a Latinx issues and casting show, a trans and gender nonconforming show, where it's half my material or this found text, and then half response pieces written by playwrights from the world about the experience. Because one of the big things that I wanted to start to shift away from was just me as this cis white hetero woman talking about the issues in communities that I don't experience. And so mm-hmm. I, well, how do I get away from that? And the best way to do that was to just give the material to writers from those communities. Um, and it's, I've really been enjoying the format. It's um, the, the response pieces are astounding. They're beautiful and they're funny and they're heartbreaking and cathartic. And, um, and then I've also been able to collaborate with people like you and Gordon and, um, uh, Amy Jo Jackson came and did a song once for a mm. women's show that I did. You know, it's just, it's kind of keeps evolving and shifting. And um, the latest iteration is I've started to do these videos where I have just one-on-one time with an actor, writer, producer, um, stage manager, whoever wants to come. Um, and we sit and we read terrible breakdowns together. And then we talk about their experience in the industry. And also I'm trying to move toward... Um, what they see that's going right in the industry as well. Mm. Like, you know, cause it's hard. I'm an actor. I'm actually in this world. I want to be working. I don't want to keep criticizing it over and over again, but also there's a lot that needs to change. And, and the fundament of everything I do is I firmly believe that the entertainment industry has the single greatest chance to do the most good in the world. Mm by sheer ubiquity, that we're just everywhere. It is what people consume every day, but currently we're doing some of the most harm. And so if we shift the power that we have in terms of representation, like getting people to see people they didn't otherwise know, then we can change the world. I mean, that's at least what I believe. But as I said, I'm a raging idealist. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm kind of curious. I mean, like you say you talk to these people on your um what is the it's called cast in this living room living room that's yeah. right um about like their experience in the industry so can we talk to you about yours you most certainly may like <laughs> um what are you thinking about lately in terms of like your experience in the industry so um my big focus this year and it's been a kind of sea change um is both as a writer and an actor shifting toward television instead uh-huh. of theater which breaks my heart because I enjoy theater a great deal more, but um, 
I had this sort of come to Jesus moment in April. I had gone to England to go to a writer's retreat, mostly because I got my heart broken. And so I like needed to get the hell out of New York mm-hmm. and like go do something. And so I found this writer's retreat in uh, the tiniest town I've ever seen called Sheepwash, England. It is in, uh, it's in Devon. It is a tiny, tiny 300, population 300 people, like this little, little town that happens to have a writer's retreat center in it, which is called Retreats For You, which is the most search engine optimized name you could possibly have for a writer's retreat. Um, but so bef- I, I, I was going there and I had this like vomit of text that I had written in a writing workshop with Chris Wells that was just me literally spending like three hours writing, 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 just about my experience um, having day jobbed as a divorce paralegal for the last 11 years. So there's that. (laughs) (laughs) So I just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote, and then I was taking it to England, and I was either going to write a one-woman show or I was going to write a television show. And before I got to Devon, I went to – I had a few days in London just kicking around because I love London – and um, I went to the ta- uh, Tate Modern, and in the Tate Modern, there's a Rothko room. And I do not like Rothko. I, I find neither. Rothko completely full of shit. <laughs> Sorry, all you Rothko fans out there. It also just makes me feel weird. Like, the feelings I feel when I see it are not pleasant. But, but see, to me, that's even more impressive than what huh. it does to me. Because I look at it, and I'm like, ah, fucking blocks of color. Like, <laughs> maybe that's where my Boston comes out, though. Um, that's interesting. Because did either of you see the play Red? No. I've seen it. I saw it years ago in college. Like, one of the things he talks about is, like, uh, the play centers around the time that he was commissioned to have his paintings around the walls of, I think it was like the Four Seasons in this like, you know, really fancy dining room. Right. And um, he was hoping to put in art that would like upset the people who were, if I'm remembering correctly, that would upset the people who were dining there. But like because of the way they lit it or just because of the way the room was laid out or for whatever reason, like his his he he went and like dined there and looked around and noticed that like no one was responding to his paintings huh. just because it w- like wasn't part of their consciousness while they were there and he literally pulled his pieces from the room because it was so important to him that they like have this like unsettling impact on those people so he does not agree with us that everyone gets to see light in the piazza their own way yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah right. sure i guess that's right exactly um but, um, but he does agree with your reaction to his work. <laughs> Great. I'm glad I'm giving him just what he was going for. Sorry. Sorry to hide. No, no, no. Well, no, no, no. all of that, all of that is related to what I was about to say, which is that um, there's a Rothko room and I was sitting in the Rothko room and the light is very, very, very dim. And there's a blurb that talks about why it's like that. And it says that... Um, it said that he was commissioned to make this art for that room in oh. the Tate Modern. Oh, okay. In the Tate Modern. Uh-huh. And, you know, that he believed that these, like, literal just canvases of purple or red, I don't know, whatever they were, um, you know, were meditative and that by keeping the light low, blah, blah, blah. It was, it was a, but it, the crux of it is it was about, like, that this art was for this room. And I was sitting there and I was thinking, if you make art for a room in a modern art museum 
you are making this art for the people who would come to that room. Mm. And granted, in the UK, it's more supported. You don't have to have a ton of money to go to a museum. But still, like you're you're talking about a level, um, a socioeconomic and education level of person who's going to wind up in the Tate Modern. Um, and I had this thought: if you make art, if you make, if you write something for theater you're writing for people who will come to a theater. Mm. But if you write for TV, you're writing for the world. And so I got to my writer's retreat two days later and um, essentially sat down and wrote a pilot because I just felt like there's so much I want to do in terms of changing what representation looks like on screen um, or in the world. And I, I just, after having that experience, I just felt like TV is the only way to go. And as I said... I prefer doing theater as a as an actor um, just in terms of the like gratification experience of it. But um, I think TV is where I want my whole career to move um, just in terms of its potential impact. Um, it's not so easy without <laughs> representation, unfortunately, but <laughs> but that is ultimately the goal. And so I've been working on this pilot um that is, as I said, about um, my experience as a divorce paralegal. Um, but my challenge to myself was, how do I write something that positions me as a protagonist, as an actor, because I'm going to write, might as well be mm -hmm. writing for myself, but that allows space for narratives that are not my narrative and that are not in service of a cis white hetero narrative. So the structure of the show, similar to a high maintenance vibe. I was about to say. Yeah, yeah, is you have a central protagonist who's a paralegal who leads you into the stories of all of these divorces and those are varied and it's a sort oh, of, it has both a narrative and a procedural element to mm -hmm. it where each episode has a different, completely unconnected, uh, Sam just, Sam is the protagonist, Sam just has to touch the story. So like, you see her writing in their name into a, a certificate of dissolution or, you know, whatever the document is, and then you're whisked away to their story. And so that way, ultimately, a season could be written with a writer's room that is extremely diverse, that is not just me, mm. and I could be working on the Sam track, but that the procedural element of it is written completely by writers that are not me. Mm. Um, and that seemed to me to be a way to solve this what is essentially a white feminism problem, which is that I'm going to have inherent bias. I'm going to have inherent privilege that I have to constantly self-investigate. I also want to get out of the way of work that should be happening. So how do I write that into a piece that also still works for me to have successes that I want to have? It's really hard. It's hard. It's hard to balance. Like there's successes I want to have. And then there's also a lot of stepping out of the way I want to do. And so finding a balance between those things. Yeah. So, yeah. Now I just got to get saying. cast in a bunch of TV <laughs> and make a shit ton of money so that I can fund the pilot I want to shoot. It's it's I mean, everything you said about the way that television has such a wider reach makes perfect sense. But it's frustrating because theater functions in such a different way and can be used in such a different way to have an impact on the people who get to see it. I totally agree. And yeah. I think there's an interesting return to a desire for a live experience that seems to be occurring because of, I think, our culture's obsession with internet and our tiny little boxes that we mm. hold in our hand, 
like immersive theater is getting mm-hmm. this huge it's not a renaissance necessarily but it's really hot it's really hot yeah. right now and i think some of that is people having an experience that is in front of them and not in their hand mm. um and so i totally agree with you i think there is there is something to theater that can have an emotional impact in a way that uh sitting alone in your home watching a, te- a computer screen i won't even say television <laughs> screen can't have yeah um but as far as like fighting as many battles as possible sure. at one time, yeah. I think TV has a better shot. Yeah. If that makes sense. Oh, 100%. It's interesting what you're saying about like getting out of the way. I was just having a conversation with one of my favorite podcast hosts the other week and his podcast stopped last year. And I was asking like, Hey, so why did your podcast stopped? And he was like, honestly, I just felt bad taking up space as like a white hetero man, like, holding court so I just decided to stop doing it and I understand where he was coming from but I was also so sad because I loved his podcast I I I understand that impetus I think for me it's a constant questioning of myself of how do I share space and get out of the way Mm -hmm. like how do I how do I let myself have a career but also figure out ways to be out of the way it's a hard, it's a, it's a pendulum swing and I'm not always doing it right. I mean, that's, yeah, that's the challenge. Yeah. Yeah. Are you guys watching Big Mouth? Yes. It's my, Big Mouth is my favorite show of 2017. I just finished season two this weekend. Oh my God. I, if, are you watching it at all? I haven't started season two yet. I just, I've only seen one episode of season two. Yeah. Um, Someone just turned me on to it and I like binge the whole thing this weekend or, or I binge all season one this weekend. It is so surprisingly touching to me. Oh, yeah, I oh, agree. Yeah. Um, and that, to me, is a great example of... It doesn't do everything right, but mm-hmm. but it's constantly subverting to me what I think it's going to do mm-hmm. and instead goes to a surprisingly compassionate place. Mm-hmm. And I feel like they've cracked into something that could potentially really... I mean, I... If I had had this shit when I was 11 <laughs> or 12. Yeah, can you imagine? Can you imagine? Yeah. I feel like it's the sex education that like every kid should have had but didn't get. Do you yeah. think are kids watching it? Huh. I know that at very least teens are watching it. Uh-huh. I don't know if preteens are watching yeah. it. I mean, I wouldn't want to watch it with them. It would make me very uncomfortable. Yeah. I don't want to watch that show with anyone else. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like I'd watch. I could watch it with like a lover, <laughs> but maybe that's it. Even that like would get a little dicey after a while. But yeah, it does make me curious. Some of the times, like watching some of the specificity, it does make me want to like ask a man, like, "Is that accurate?" Oh, I buy all of it as accurate. <laughs> yeah. How do we feel in terms of representation? How do we feel about Jenny Slate, a white woman, voicing a? black drawn character that is a very very good question and i don't have an answer for it yet i didn't realize it was jenny slate until um like a couple days ago i was like oh who's doing that voice because i thought maybe it was like maya rudolph doing like Mm -hmm. a crazy high-pitched voice or something and then when i realized it was jenny i was like i don't know how i feel about that it's um there's a similar thing in bojack horseman oh yeah where allison brie is the voice of Diane, who's a Vietnamese character. Oh. And the, I was reading some article with the creator of BoJack, 
who like was saying like yes this was like a total oversight on our parts um it's he was saying like it's crazy how these things just kind of happen and you don't even sort of realize it until um until you've gotten to a point and you're like oh wait no like no this is not actually okay um and i i like they've I think they had a conversation about like whether or not she should continue to do the voice and they decided that she should, but they're going to, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't want to speak for them, but like, yeah. Yeah. it is an interesting um, question because in terms of representation, it's not like a physical um, issue. Like you're not like watching, watching right. a person of a different race pretend to be. You know what I mean? Correct. But you are still talking about an employment opportunity yeah. that went to a white person as opposed to a person of color. Right. Do you think it matters at all, the question of was Missy the character conceptualized as black and then Jenny Slate was hired? Or was it always known we want to work with Jenny Slate and then they made the decision, you know what, I'd like to see this character look different? That's exactly what I was just about to ask because I'd be curious about the chicken and egg situation yeah. with that. Whether it was, oh, we're creating a bunch of characters Jenny, you do this, 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 you know, um, Jesse, you do this, this, this. And then subsequently when it's going into its animation phase, was that decision made? And I don't, yeah, I don't know. I would be very curious to hear what their thoughts on it is. Yeah. Because it definitely like makes me shiver a little. Like, you know, I don't quite know what to do with it. Um, and it's funny because that's another situation where I'm like, oh, the show is doing so much good. Right. Do I need it to fight every battle? Right. Mm -hmm. I mean, I do want it to be mindful of the battles that it's fighting or not fighting. Yeah. But yeah. I would like to think because of how thoughtful it is about everything else that there is some, uh, some, some thought behind it. I would like to think that you'd be surprised yeah. at how well, little self-investigation there can be. Sometimes. That's how I feel about BoJack. Like I think yeah. in terms of, um, um, depression and mm -hmm. and issues around that like i think it's like incredibly important like the stories that they're telling but the creator of that was saying like it was crazy how this just like wasn't a part of the conversation until it was too late to like make the actual right choice yeah but i mean even saying that there's some investigation that has to happen because it's like you have to look right at but now they're on season five right you know and he's <laughs> right, saying right, that right. I, I read it recently i don't know how recently he said it but but that but that's what i mean is like you have to go back and look at what level of privilege was i operating at exactly that i don't even see exactly these things. Yeah. exactly yeah yeah and this is this is a point i make in my um living room show a lot which is that when as makers as any maker when you are curating a room, uh, whether that is the early, early table read in someone's living room around a kitchen table, um, through its reading and development phases, through you have to start at its earliest point of curating a room that is diverse and inclusive. I mean, that you just have to decide that that is important to you. And if you don't, you cannot be surprised when you wind up down the line and you have an all white cast or you have an right. all yeah. able bodied cast or, an, you know, you have no representation across the board. This is sort of a random specific question, but I was just on an email thread last night. We're about to go into auditions for this show, Elevator Heart, and it's really important to us. It's just it's like an ensemble of eight women. And it's really important to us that it's not just all white women. And we were trying to decide. I think I might have been at first on the wrong side of this, but now I may be coming around about whether we explicitly say in the casting breakdown, like, 
we want a diverse ensemble. Because at first I was sort of thinking, like, well, obviously we're going to cast a diverse ensemble. Why does it matter if we say it? You but then everyone else was saying it. Yeah. You absolutely have to say it. And I don't know what channels you're going through, but one of the big problems, and this is one of those things where it's like absolutely everyone at every level of the industry always has to be doing the best all the time. Because um, rep, when they don't see an explicit... <sighs> They literally won't send people They'll in? send their white people. That's crazy to me. Yeah. I mean, th- and this is why, like, people often ask me, like, oh, is the problem casting directors? And I'm like, first of all, no. Usually casting directors are actually fighting because they're trying to keep and get and keep jobs, too. So they're always trying to, like, broaden director and producers' minds. There are a few exceptions. There are a couple I have issues with. But, like, <laughs> for the most part, if a project is smart enough to use a casting director, it means that, that they're going to have a higher quality of breakdown. Um, and a higher quality of list making. Um, but yeah, unfortunately, it is very common for rep if it does not explicitly say this project specifically is looking to cast a racially diverse cast, you will get their white people sent in. And, so and I have spoken to actors of color um, that have said, who are um, unrepped who will say that they won't necessarily submit themselves um, huh. or depending on the way a breakdown is written, right. they'll self-select out. Yeah. I, I always encourage for that both to be a note that's at the top of the breakdown mm-hmm. and also within each role that it says we really, really want to see. And also I would encourage, say, we really want to see actors who are non-able-bodied. We really want to see, we're interested in non-binary and gender non-conforming yeah, yeah, roles. Yeah. We're, in, we're interested in, I would also encourage it to say female identifying mm-hmm, and not mm-hmm. say woman, you know, that language really matters. And it, it to me, it reflects the way the entire process is going to go. The um, There's this casting director, Kate Lumpkin, who is wonderful and she just put out a breakdown recently that blew my mind instead of saying their gender identities each character had their pronouns listed and that to me is such an open way of writing a breakdown because then you if you are gender nonconforming or you are a trans individual you can look at a breakdown and say oh these are the pronouns that this character uses I do or do not identify with those pronouns I will or will not submit myself for those pronouns like instead of saying like I've got to figure out what this casting director means about the word woman about the word Mm -hmm. man about the word non-binary you just see these pronouns and decide whether that is what you are willing to play or not I I loved it I thought it was great I've never seen another casting director do it I thought it was great that's really cool and she's she's also been very um, a very positive force in the TGNC casting world as well. There's a, there's an, I mean, this is what I mean. There's a lot of allies out there. It's just a case of like getting the non-allies out of the way. Yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, one of the things I, I wanted to ask you about cast and loose is like my, my assumption seeing most of those breakdowns is that they weren't from like the most prominent casting directors, right? It's a mix. Yeah, I I, I assumed there were some, but yeah. like because well, because most of the most of the breakdowns that I see that are so offensive are the ones that are clearly written by the person who wrote the piece. Yes. Um, or the director or whatever. Um, who is just you know, it's their one-off project, right? Yep. Um, but like, uh, yeah. So you're saying it's a mix. It is the. The level of 
professionalism of the various breakdowns ranges the gamut from student crap. <laughs> Sorry, students, <laughs> but you're putting out crap. <laughs> student crap to big budget film and television. Mm. Um, I would say the majority lies somewhere in the middle. Mm-hmm. Um, but you are correct that often the biggest problems, even for the really big budget stuff, comes when a project like the director or producer insisted or writer insisted Mm -hmm. on writing the breakdowns and didn't let the casting director write the breakdowns. Mm -hmm. There were a couple cases a couple years ago with two major off-Broadway theaters in New York City. Um, These were like right in a row. It's just a coincidence. It was like the same month that two major theaters released very, very bad breakdowns. And both cases um, was a case where the director adapter or writer adapter insisted on writing the breakdown and because both cases used casting directors I knew that I also knew to be very good at their job Mm -hmm. and so Uh I contacted them I was like what happened and they were like they wouldn't let us write the breakdown Uh so writers and directors (laughs) let your (laughs) casting director write the breakdown yeah I've never and if you're really unsure send them to me (laughs) (laughs) castingloose at gmail.com I will approve your breakdown love that yeah i feel like gordon and i always write our own we've worked with casting directors a couple of times yeah but but i mean even if you've got eyes on them you know mm-hmm. you i also trust you guys because i know your work but um yeah even if you've just got someone who's going like yep 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 that's okay yeah because at the end of the day all of this is employment law that's what's mm. crazy about all of it is like we're actually under the umbrella of employment law the problem is a lot of breakdowns completely break the law when it comes yeah. to the things they're asking for or the things that they're specifying. Which things? I don't know anything about what employment law. Well, I mean, can I you imagine a, a, a job listening for a lawyer that says they have to have <laughs> big tits? I mean, <laughs> shit like that. Or that they have to be African-American. Well, yeah. and this is an interesting loophole is that, and this came up with the whole Hamilton situation a couple years oh, ago, right. is that you have to you have to say that the character is right. such and such. You right. can't say that the actor is. Right. But that gets really, really squirrely when you start talking about commercials because commercials often you're not casting a character. You're casting like <laughs> right. we need six yeah. people for the background of this commercial, right. you know, whatever it huh. is. Yeah. Interesting. I've had, I have a good friend who's a, um, an employment lawyer and I posted a breakdown. This is really early on in the days of casting this. And he wrote to me, he was like, you know, they're not allowed to write this and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, Bitch, go read my Tumblr. Like, <laughs> like, look at the all of this. Like, they're all they're they're writing all of this. You Just know? for funsies, do you remember any of the more like entertaining, ridiculous ones? Oh yes. So, um, the ones, a couple of the ones that really started things for me, where I really, it was a really, um, I shouldn't say even started it it was a turning point for me where I realized I had something much bigger than just like a joke on my hand. Uh, one was, um, uh, Leroy. He, oh shit, I have to think of this. Um, a young LeVar Burton at heart, aware he's the token black friend, but totally cool with it. Mm. Right. And then the other one was um, 20s, 30s, an Asian woman who doesn't have the, the harsh features of other Asian women. She is more sophisticated and knows it or something. I'm not, I'm paraphrasing mm. a little bit. So those were two that I came across and was like, holy shit, like this is, 
so much bigger than me and so much it bigger. It does make you really question like the entire project and worldview of the creative team. If like those things can come out. Absolutely. Like but, what is that character's dialogue probably like? Right. Well, and what are we rehashing? What story are we telling ourselves over and over yeah. again if these stereotypes are written directly into the breakdown, into the the, the initial seeds of hiring a person to portray that? Um, yeah, it's... One of the things I would really like to do, and I have no idea how I want to do the legwork to do this, but I want to start getting into the film schools and doing presentations on how to write a breakdown mm. because these kids are the future of the industry. And because they're allowed to work on a SAG contract, which is a the student film contract, they are interacting with the professional world. And none of the professors seem to be approving or editing these breakdowns because huh. they come out and they're deeply offensive whitewashed usc puts out these whitewashed breakdowns where everything's listed as caucasian for no reason all they need is one professor to come out and say hey open your your concept when you start casting this stuff because also you're blocking yourself from potentially great performers who will capture the spirit of this character right and it doesn't have to fall into your rehashed idea you know, because these kids are rehashing things that they've seen. That's that's what you do as you develop yourself as an artist. You start out by just redoing the things you, you've seen done. But if we keep redoing what we've seen done, we're never going to break this cycle of of stereotypes and poor representation. So, yeah. So, USC, NYU, Columbia, <laughs> hit, hit, hit at me. I just need a small honorarium <laughs> or a significant honorarium. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. That's all, Rob.